3CR broadcasts on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. Sovereignty was never ceded, and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast. I hope everyone had a good weekend. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Morning and welcome back, Claudia. <laughs> yeah, Thank welcome you. back, Claudia. Lovely to be back in the studio and especially on this jam-packed morning that we have waiting absolutely and that was beyond zero emissions ahead of monday breakfast show always got a good show for us um so yeah how was everyone's weekends not too bad not too or bad. weeks it's been a whole week try to try to stay out of trouble <laughs> <laughs> successfully or not successfully oh not too bad saturday morning was a bit rough <laughs> <laughs> how about you ella yeah, I had a pretty quiet one working lots this week after the Christmas period. Got to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make up for those Boxing Day sales. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we got along to a um, band on Friday night called the Long Necks who were playing um, just nearby here, actually, um, and they were dedicating their proceeds from the gig to the bushfire, so along with so many other um, community efforts. Mm-hmm. It was really inspiring. And, and where was that held? That was held at a local um, pub just up the road in Abbotsford, Mm -hmm. yeah, so um, just a small kind of group, but um, yeah, it was just good to see everyone. Good turnout as well? Yeah, yeah, it was a good turnout, nice sort of cosy room, but about, you know, 100 people, and um, yeah, good vibe. And then uh, yesterday, my daughter went off to see Warhorse, so um, given you are going to be... Uh, playing your yes. interview with the director of puppetry, I'm really interested to hear Amazing. what he has to say because she just loved it. Oh, awesome. did she? Good, yeah, because it had its opening night on Friday, um, so it's brand new to Melbourne, and I don't know if I didn't know if many people were familiar with it. It's come from the UK, so I'm familiar with the story and with the production. But I'm intrigued to see how well it does in Melbourne. But if your daughter said she loved it, that's great. Oh, it's brilliant. It has actually been here before. Oh, I'm okay. showing my age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my older daughter, I took my older daughter when she was younger, and um, it's brilliant. But, yeah, the children um, study a Morris Gleitzman novel called Loyal Creatures in, mm-hmm. ch- ch- in Year 7, uh, which is about an Australian um, horse and who goes off to the war. So it's a similar really sort of similar themes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, my daughter had studied that last year, so I thought she'd be on top of the themes, and she loves theatre, so... Perfect. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, well, Gareth Allard is going to be with us very shortly. Um, we're going to li- hear from him at 7.15. So, yeah, can't wait to play that. For the meantime, I think we're going to take a quick look at the papers... That was that all that rustling. That was all that rustling. Newspapers in the studio. Um, So we've each got one, I think. Pads, do you want one? I'll have one. Thank you. You've got the Financial Times there. um, I'm the lucky one with the Herald Sun. Um, So Herald Sun are talking about the royals, royals in crisis. 
and they've also got some twins on the front pitching in to help clear families fire hit farm picture is adorable of the twins um carrying some firewood and the royal story i mean really just who cares about that it's, it's just they want to have a normal life is that they want to yeah they they're taking they're taking a break or they're cutting ties off from their duties with the royal family to be financially independent which firstly is hilarious um i'd love to see them doing their shifts at woolies and coles um that would be great but yeah the idea of them being financially independent is quite funny um but yeah they want to take a break from it so they're going off to canada i think I know there's quite a few countries that have wanted to uh, cut their ties with the royals over time. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Kind of a safe haven for everyone these days, Mm -hmm. refugees and the royals. Mm -hmm. I like the title in the Australian, The Best, which is Duke of Sadness. Duke of Sadness. Oh. Well, the sun goes in just a couple of pages in, and it says, Will's pain for Harry. I mean, is Harry... Is Harry the victim? I don't know. I mean, is any? I mean, are they victim? No. I I find it. Yeah, it it doesn't leave a nice taste in my mouth. All this royal chat. So. But in England, like I'll, when whenever there's a wedding or anything, they're like celebrities. Like they are. The well, they are. Yeah. Like. The yeah, they are. And and I would say that they do have the support of the majority. Um, and I've seen a little bit of. Um, criticism, well, massive criticism, really, of, of Meghan Markle, and which is why she's wanting, probably wanting to just step back and step away from it, because Harry and Will are seen as like the nation's sweethearts. So the idea that now Harry isn't going to be around is, yeah, for some some sort of royalists, Meghan Markle is the enemy, and also it's quite um, funny, like because this has happened a similar situation before years and years and years ago with someone called Wallace Simpson, who was an American who married into the royal family and then sort of took one of the princes away and then they got banished and oh, sort of right? live in France somewhere. Oh, if you watch The Crown, you can... Oh, yeah, The Crown. <laughs> See history repeat itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what does a royal do in, in the end, like, without being cynical? What, what well, they else? don't really... I think all they really do is, is like, PR. That's just what they are there for. Like, it's just public relations, really. They just walk around, shake hands with people, go off to other countries, have be, be the, like, face of, of England or the UK. Um, they don't really do anything else. I mean, people people say in the UK... Oh, like tourism, like wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for the royal family. Like we we owe them this. Like they make so much money for the country because of tourism. But actually, um, Chester Zoo in Manchester um, takes in more money <laughs> m- money on an annual basis than any of the the royal family houses like put together. Like Chester Zoo. So actually, I don't know if we can really say that tourism is a thing. And also, we have a we have a history. And we have a well-preserved history um, with sort of castles and different places that you can go and visit. So I don't feel like at the moment they do have much to do with any tourism, in my opinion. But It could be like the Grand Prix, though. I mean, the actual takings aren't that great, but the, the knock-on effect, we're well, told, is you yeah. know, what keeps it here. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's probably exactly it. But even now, I'm probably giving them too much airtime than they deserve. Yeah. So yeah, should we move on? I was going to say elsewhere <laughs> in the news. <so. laughs> also, sorry, go on. 
yeah, so front page on The Australian is the bushfires, of course, um, and apparently a um, royal commission is um, going to happen. Um, it says all but certain is the line here. Great. Um, so we're going to be looking into how it's handled, um, and there's always also talk of carbon emission reductions. Mm-hmm. Um, so controversially, the government were going to use some carryover credits to meet their targets, uh, but they're now turning around on this and saying they're going to try and do it the right way and actually reduce emissions. Interesting. We should see how, yeah, keep an eye on that story. And that's on the Australian, did you say? Yeah, that's right, on the Australian. Um, and, yeah, Scott Morrison's becoming increasingly unpopular. Mm. Yeah, there seems to be so much political pressure um, behind behind the bushfire that we could sort of make him do whatever we wanted at this time. Yeah, not just from Australia, even all around the world, I think. Um, yeah. It's been labelled the world's most unpopular man of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, The Age has also got the admissions cuts on the front page, and I think, Paddy, you've got that on the, yeah, on the Fin Review, review as, well. as well. Yeah, um, And also announcement of a mega um, stars coming together for um, a relief concert um, to raise money for the, the fire um, victims. Um, and there's a huge lineup actually, just looking. There's Queen and Adam Lambert, Alice Cooper, Katie Lang, Olivia Newton John, and it will be um, hosted by Celeste Barber, who's um, Fundraising now has tipped fifty million. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> it's just phenomenal. Yeah, she has a very large US presence apparently, okay. and so it's her. I mean, she's she's Australian, but she has a huge US following, and I think she's really managed to tap into that. And her post has yeah gone viral, and as you said, over fifty million, which is amazing. Concert's going to be in Sydney, which is a bit of a shame for us in Melbourne. But if anyone's up in Sydney, uh, February the sixteenth, sounds like. It'd be a good event. I know there's mm. a huge one at uh, Sydney Meyer Music Bowl on the 26th of February. I think that sold out, but that was with like Briggs and like a whole um whole whole Australian lineup. It was really really cool awesome. to see. Well, that's the newspapers for <laughs> for today, and I think if we're going to go to a track. Yeah, we're going to play a little song called "Let It Rain," a bit appropriate, um, uh, by Rich Webb.
and that was Rick Webb with Let It Rain. And on Friday, I spoke with Gareth Alid while he was preparing for opening night, um, who is the puppetry director for the new show that's come to Melbourne. Well, it's not really a new show, but I guess it's coming to Melbourne. Um, Warhorse. And Warhorse is based on the novel by Michael Mapergo and is a remarkable story of courage, loyalty and friendship. It tells the story of a young boy called Albert and his horse, Joey, and it's set against the backdrop of the First World War. It comes from the National Theatre of Great Britain and it's playing now at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne and, as I said, only opened on Friday. So I first asked Gareth how he started his career in the theatre. So I graduated as an actor from drama school in 2010 um, and it was during 2010 that I first saw Warhorse whilst it was in the West End um, and then I... Uh, got cast in the play in 2012, at the end of 2012, so for 2013, 14 and into 2015, I puppeteered the head of Joey in the play whilst it was at the West End, um, and then I continued to work as an actor and, and then as a director and for lots of different productions, um, and I joined uh, the Warhorse Company again as resident puppetry director, this time only about a year and a half ago. So I completely fell in love as a teenager with ensemble storytelling, physical storytelling, and Warhorse is uh, is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you feel when you first saw it? Did you know much about it before you went in, or was no, it? No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine who was in the year above at drama school was playing Albert, the young boy at the time, and I remember being completely uh, blown away by the. I think the generosity in the heart of it, you know, it's it's a big ensemble piece. It's a large uh, cast, a big company of people, and they perform with such heart and dedication. And at the center of the story are these incredible puppets that live and breathe and they think and they feel. And the performers and the puppeteers convince you so strongly of that life that you do forget that the puppeteers exist. Mm. But in order for that to work successfully, the, there's a huge amount of generosity required and uh, and uh, a lack of ego and i remember being so captivated engaged by it also there's something about warhorse that the components to it are so engaging and detailed and incredible the lighting the sound the the stage design the, the set the costumes um the folk songs that that knit and weave our narrative together along with the puppetry and the puppets themselves but somehow warhorse resonates greater than the sum of its parts there's a kind of an alchemy that happens and that the audience and the specific auditorium we're in are part of that and it makes it for a a memorable and impactful evening Mm -hmm. and i hope that we still and i witness it now in the audience sharing with audiences we have uh, an an impact on audiences in the same way that it, it had an impact on me as a drama school graduate all those years ago and just for our listeners at home can you just um briefly sort of let them know um, what, what Warhorse, what the story is about. It's based on a novel, I believe, by Michael Mapargo. I hope I'm saying that yeah, right. Yeah, Michael Mapargo, yes. Uh-huh. So it was a, a novel that, that Michael wrote. It was adapted to the stage by the National Theatre in 2007. It tells the story of a young boy called Albert and a horse called Joey. And the play begins with Albert as a young boy and Joey as a foal horse. And they grow up together and develop this bond, this love. The First World War breaks out, and Joey is sequestered to the army. He is sold to the First World War, 
and Albert at the age of 16 runs away to find his horse and we follow that narrative then. Um, it's an incredible moving piece and I think there's something about a First World War story and the importance of, of remembering and telling those stories but you're seeing it through the eyes or you're experiencing it via an animal and there's a neutrality there. The animal doesn't understand the politics of a, of a human conflict, doesn't understand English or French or German. The horse responds to tone and intonation and behavior and vulnerability and kindness, all these things that we now know about horses and our research. And I think that's why it's so powerful. Mm. Um, perhaps on top of that also is the, the, the connection that we have and the history we have between humans and horses. And um, and I think that that's powerful too the 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 relationship between human and animal and that bond. Mm. Have you done a lot of research then with the relationship between horses and humans? Yeah, absolutely. And and horses themselves. You know, it's our job to be um, incredibly curious about it. Mm. You know, war horses had this. It's got an incredible um, history the stage show it's been seen by around eight million people it's had all this critical acclaim it has a huge place in people's hearts that have seen the production but our it's our job to remain incredibly curious can we make this more horse-like more believable more authentic the puppetry um demands a front-footedness and a sensitivity to be live in the moment and therefore everything around those puppets demands the same Mm. And so each performance um, is unique. Um, and so we're constantly developing, looking at horse behavior, horse psychology, um, human physicality in relation to a horse and what a horse perceives that as being. That's part of the narrative. And you see that um, that uh, development and that negotiation between Albert, the young boy, and uh, Joey, the foal horse, where you, start, you see them understand each other. And that's part of our storytelling. So we do lots of research and continue to develop it. Mm. Do you think um, it's also a really important time to be telling this story, especially, I mean, in Australia in a, in a new in a new home um, for the for the production, based on the ideas of divisions in in Europe, perhaps, and and actually communication, like you said, Joey Joey doesn't know politics doesn't know the history of the historical background he only responds to tone kindness yeah absolutely absolutely you know michael mapergo describes the story as being an anthem for peace and ultimately even though the story um has the backdrop of the war and the conflict and the horror ultimately love wins and loyalty and community uh and and the goodness in in what's good um in people and humans um, and animals, that that prevails. Mm. Um, and also, we're very privileged that our play, our war story, um, has a broad appeal. So you have perhaps a ten-year-old right through to a grandparent. You know, a lot, lots of people, a wide range of people come to our show, and also perhaps young people that have not only never experienced a story or know much about the First World War, but perhaps they've never been to the theatre before. Um, so that's something that we and I take very seriously. Mm. Um, and as part of the work that we do, often we deliver um, workshops where we work with young people, um, perhaps puppetry workshops, or we look at the text or the, the history. Um, and I consider that 
to be as important uh, a part of a component of my job as working with our puppeteers. Um, it feels like a real privilege and, and an important thing. Mm. And so you're in a team of three, I believe, who who uh, brings life to Joey throughout the show. Can you yeah. can you tell me a little bit more about the the head, the heart, and the hind, and how absolutely. they all work together? Yeah, absolutely. So it takes three puppeteers to bring a puppet horse to life. So we have three puppeteers that operate Joey as a foal, which we refer to as Baby Joey. Three puppeteers that operate Adult Joey, and three puppeteers that operate Top Form, who's one of the military horses. And so what those three puppeteers are doing is they're working incredibly closely. It's a huge act of listening and trust. They are they have technical tasks and emotional indicators. I guess that's the best way of describing it. So there's lots of things that they're doing, but I can distill it down to these two main things. So the head puppeteer technically is maintaining the eye line of the horse. Humans and animals are incredibly observant of eye line, so where the horse is looking is key. They can operate the ears via bicycle brake levers, and the the ears, the movement in the ears, can tell us a lot about emotion. So perhaps if the head is held high and the ears are pinned back, we know from our research that that's, that suggests fear or agitation. If the head lowers, the ears soften forwards, we think that's a more passive horse. Uh, perhaps an ear, like a satellite dish, will, will follow a character across the stage and we understand what the thought is there or what the emotional state is. The heart puppeteer, technically, every time they move the front legs, they have to squeeze uh, a trigger which pulls on a, on a string tendon, a bungee cord, which curls the hoof and that articulation in the ankle and the knee joint really convinces you of a horse-like action. And then emotionally, and this is the simplest mechanism in the puppet, but it's the most important. When the heart puppeteer bends their knees, the horse, the cage moves up and down, which appears to be breath. And if, if our puppets breathe, we can convince you that it's living. And then the rhythm of that breath will suggest what the puppet is feeling or thinking. Um, and then the hind puppeteer, so technically they have ski poles mounted to the legs, attached to the legs, back legs, and they have to maintain the gait of the horse. So our puppets walk and they trot and they gallop, and each gait has a distinct rhythm, and so they adhere to that rhythm, they keep that in check. And then finally, emotionally, on those ski poles are bicycle brake levers, which can uh, move the tail left and right and up and down, which gives us some gorgeous tail expression. So it's the three, head, heart, and hind, combining those technical tasks and emotional indicators and being generous to each other, knowing when to be still, knowing when to do less, and then knowing when it's, it's, it, it, there's a sense of a uh, big dynamic movement needed. It, it's working together very de- in a very detailed way that, that suggests life and these mm. idiosyncrasies and, and um, movements. That's a kind of a brief window into it, really, but there's lots of things that they're doing, and they're creating all the horse noises too. <laughs> wow. And is there any room for, um, like, spontaneity when you're working with each other, or like any kind Absolutely. of ad-libbing? Or, yeah. So Absolutely. it's not... The puppets, okay. No, the puppets, it's not like, very, it's not like strict dance choreography. Mm. Obviously, there are set moves and there are things that need to happen in certain locations on the stage or in particular moments and on particular cues, and they're constantly aware of the production around them and how they negotiate that. But in terms of 
I think of it more as um, checkered points. There's a framework there, and how you navigate from one to the next will change slightly depending on how perhaps if an actor delivers a line differently, the puppet will respond differently because a horse would. Mm. Um, if they, they change their physicality, uh, perhaps Albert won in a moment where Albert is telling Joey off. If Albert is directly making eye contact with the puppet, our puppeteers know that means that a horse would think that that's a predator because of forward-facing eyes. And if there's an intensity in that, they will physically and vocally respond differently. Um, and that goes back again to the the going live on it each time that I was talking about. Mm. And how well do you how well do you feel you know Joey? I feel like I know Joey incredibly well. I mean, I had the, the experience of puppeteering Joey for so long, and now I get to witness the work that our amazing puppeteers do. But I think it's, I think it's our job to constantly develop it. And also, our puppeteers are a team of puppeteers that rotate. So the personality of Joey will shift. The team of three, if you, repl- if you swap in another puppeteer, because there are a handful of puppeteers that share that responsibility and they will alternate from one show to the next. And all you need to do is swap one of the puppeteers in and the personality will shift. So if you have a completely different team one night to the next, Joey's character, the perception of Joey's character, will change. So it's not just that our puppeteers are responding differently. The actors are day after day responding to a different Joey. And so the, the, the idea of who Joey is as a character is changing all the time, but always staying true to the narrative and the story that you're telling. And that was Gareth Allard, the puppetry director of Warhorse, which is now in Melbourne. And you can check it out at the Regent Theatre. You can go on to warhorseonstage.com.au for tickets, or you can just give the... Regent's Theatre a call or go on online or you can just pop in and see if you can you can get in them that way. So thank you, Gareth Allard. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programmes every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Comme moi la dernière 3CR Community Radio, please subscribe now. Testimonia una ila ida 3CR Community Radio araja al istrak el an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli 3CR ay kert kondir kondir kal. Inre inayengal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuk ketsek radio i gairanin oratang udam elbumi hai kaotin. Hima artan akrvetsek ipur 3CR i antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch.
Okay, so next up we have Adam Cassidy, the Community Diversity and Inclusion Manager at Cricket Australia, talking to us from Geelong, where the National Cricket Inclusion Championships are kicking off today. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Nice to uh, have you on the show. Now tell us, what's the atmosphere like down at Geelong at present? Fantastic. We had our opening ceremony last night and um, 250 athletes. Um, all together in Geelong from every state and territory and I'm ready to kick off all the action today. Oh, brilliant. So tell us, um, what are the National Cricket Inclusion Championships? So the Inclusion Championships bring together uh, the the best cricketers with disabilities all across Australia, across three divisions. Uh, We have deaf and hard of hearing, blind and low vision and cricketers with intellectual disabilities. Uh, it's all the, the best state players and state teams across all those divisions and they take part in a week-long carnival and essentially we come out with our three winners at the end and it's a bit of a pathway event for selection for national teams across those divisions as well. And you have two women's teams participating this year? We do. So last year we had an exhibition match, a, a deaf women's exhibition match, which was the world first um, and this year it's now sort of grown into an actual series which has been named um, the M. Hale Cup after Melissa Hale who is um, the captain of the Victorian deaf team and, and she's been instrumental in um, the growth of, of the game for in the deaf community for women. So um, they announced that last night that the trophy from this day forward will be named after her. Wonderful. And it's an adult competition or do you have a juniors division as well? Uh, it is an adult competition. However, we do have some quite young competitors um, participating. We've got a 14-year-old um, young guy from Queensland in the blind division wow. um, called Sean Kendrick. She's actually a real chance to make the national team and become the youngest ever um, rep- Australian representative. So if he has a good series here, it's not out of the question he could, he could make the Australian team as well. Um, and in the blind division, it's quite a diverse range of ages because they have different levels of vision um, within that team and there's, there's some that are older than 50 and then there's obviously Sean who's 14 so it's a nice range of ages. Wow that's uh, really encouraging to see uh, that sort of you know pathway so early on. Yeah definitely, definitely. And listeners might be wondering how does someone who can't see the ball play cricket? Yeah it's interesting because often I'll get asked what does inclusion cricket look like and it's kind of a strange question because in the other two divisions it's just cricket and it's quality cricket there's no difference to anything you'd see if you walked past on the weekend and saw this it's just a really quality game of cricket but in the blind division there's obvious differences and one is that there's a bell in the ball um the bowler will bowl underarm and the ball has to bounce at least once uh sorry twice before it gets to the batter and there's three kind of categories of player b1 b2 and b3 depending on their level of vision so b1 has no vision at all, um, then B2 has a little bit of vision and B3 has a little bit more vision. And you've got to have a certain amount of players in each team. And essentially, though, it's all, it's all really done by, by sound, just hearing the bell in the ball um, and then hitting there. So in the field, it's the same. And it's just incredible to watch the way that they can pick up that, that noise of the ball and, and still hit the ball all the way to the boundary. They use the same size field as, as the other categories do as well. Showing the power of the sensors... It's amazing. and Yeah, there's people that bowl close to 100 kilometres an hour in that event, so it's amazing. Wow. That's uh, incredible. Um, and it's the fourth year of the championships? Yeah, fourth year and fourth year in Geelong as well. They've been wonderful hosts to date. Um, the Geelong Cricket Association does an amazing job, um, as do the, the local council in their support. 
before this event. Um, facilities are fantastic, so we've sort of really enjoyed our time here, to be honest. And the good thing about this event, too, is we've had different winners nearly every year in every category, mm-hmm. so it's a really hard um, Competition. tournament to predict, which is great, and, and lots of growth in participation off the back of it as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you've been going for three years, and this is the fourth. Um, what are the changes that have occurred over this time? I think awareness within the public that there is a pathway in cricket for, for anybody, no matter what their level of skill or ability is, that there's um, opportunities to play cricket. There's many clubs around Australia that are unbelievably inclusive and provide a brilliant atmosphere for anyone to come down and play. And, and in the instance where some level of, sort of high support need is, is required for a player, there's plenty of clubs that um, are very much skilled in, in looking after those sorts of players as well. And the players here are role models in their community. They go back and, and work hard within the disability community to, to promote cricket. And as a result, we've seen sort of um, numbers of participants really grow in this area up to around about 27,000 across Australia now. Wow. And is that at all levels of cricket? Definitely, yeah. So even at this event, we've got some who play in um, competitions like the Integrated Cricket League in Perth, which is specifically set up for intellectual disability. Um, but then you've got people in the deaf and hard of hearing division who some play premier cricket, some play um, at their local club cricket, some play some districts. So a real diversity of, I guess, um, skill levels which are all catered for across different clubs in Australia. And do you think the national championships um, have created a greater acceptance of difference amongst the wider cricket community? Yeah, I think so. I think there's still a lot of work across all sports, I think, in terms of you know, sort of educating some clubs who potentially aren't quite there yet, but definitely we've seen a massive shift and, and it really does start from the clubs, the, the most inclusive clubs across Australia in cricket have, have really done it themselves and it's um, that perception is incredible. Like we we have a few players who obviously their parents have told us, you know, school was really challenging, they were quite isolated and cricket has given them this wonderful amount of confidence. They've now got a, a national network of of friends through these championships and then those that have played for Australia have an international network now who they get on Facebook and, and chat and they get offered support if they've had a rough day and, and that sort of stuff is, is wonderful and I know as a result I think of the um, profile of these championships a lot of the players talk about their club environment and, and how good that is now and um, how much they're looked up to within their club and their leaders within their club. So it's having a real normalising effect? Absolutely, yeah. That's wonderful to hear. Um, you've got a fantastic week ahead. The championship matches are being played at nine different venues in Geelong and wider Geelong. Um, how can spectators find out more about the fixtures and the teams? Yeah, so if you go on to um, the, the tournament website, which is NCIC, which is National Cricket Inclusion Championships, um, .cricket.com.au, um, you can view all the fixtures there. There's quite a few games from sort of Wednesday onwards, sorry, from tomorrow onwards, that will be live streamed as well. So you can actually watch um, some of the games. And then the grand finals on Friday are all live streamed through Cricket Australia's Facebook and YouTube channels as well. And um, we've got some good commentators coming into those. And um, Nathan Lyon will be popping down on Friday as well. He's an ambassador for these championships. So if uh, anyone's around, it's worth coming down for a look. Yeah, and it's school holidays, so a great opportunity for families to um, take their kids along and support the players and also demonstrate um, 
the value of inclusivity and diversity in our community um, and be sort of role models, I suppose, in, in, in sharing those values. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my son's staying with um, my father-in-law not far from here during this week. He's sort of babysitting, but I'll be bringing him down as well just to, to show that the, the skill of these players is phenomenal. Like, um, that, that's the thing that struck me in, in year one was, I'm not sure what I expected, to be honest, but what I saw was just unbelievably good standard of cricket, which I think anyone who's a cricket fan is, would love to come down and watch. And if you're in Victoria, cheer on the Vicks, and wherever else you're from, you can cheer on your state team. And sounds like it's going to be quite unpredictable as to uh, who takes off the championship trophies at the end of the week. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a fair few new players this year, actually, so that adds that little bit of unpredictability. Excellent. And um, just uh, because we've got a few minutes left, um, and I know you've got things to go to, but um, after the Inclusion Championships, you're heading off to the Imparja Cup? Yeah, so um, starting on the 27th of January in Alice Springs, we have our annual National Indigenous Cricket Championships and Imparja Cup, uh, which has been going for nearly 30 years now. And um, it's just a wonderful event that brings together the best Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cricketers from all around Australia. Um, many of whom have, through these championships, have gone on to, to represent their states and Australia, the likes of Ash Gardner, Darcy Short, um, and Brendan Doggett, who's, and Josh Layla, who are both playing Big Bash as well at the moment. And, yeah, so it's, it's just a brilliant event. Um, wonderful cultural experience as well and, and some great cricket. Well, that's, that's fantastic, and uh, you do a great job there um, bringing everyone together and um, bringing everyone into such a popular game in Australia. So thank you, Adam, for joining us this morning. And uh, i better let you go. I believe you've got some wellbeing uh, workshops coming up soon. Yes, we do. We've each, each team here um, doing some wellbeing workshops just around sort of mental health and, um, and those sorts of things, which is um, obviously really important across all, all levels of our sport. So, um, yeah, it's good that we're able to give that opportunity to, to the teams here. And the first games are kicking off at about... I shouldn't say kicking off, should I? What do you say in cricket? It's not teeing <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> Batting off, off, I guess, yeah. <laughs> at um, 8.30 this morning. Yeah, early start for some of those players. They're playing out at Deakin, and then, yeah, we've got some games at South Barwon and um, Turnhill and Hyden today, so all over the John. Okay. Um, well, wish you all the best for that, and once again, um, if uh, anyone's interested in cricket or just... Uh, supporting your community um, and you're down in Geelong, then um, head down to the uh, Cricket Australia Inclusion Championships and, um, yeah, it should be a, a great week ahead. So thank you, Adam. Thank you very much. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. There's many great loves in history that we know about But a tale of two lovers that was told to me Makes me want to scream and shout Like Romeo and Juliet A love story you won't forget But tell me why, tell me why did they destroy a love like that? Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why And the Austin loved each other well. Oh, and I don't think that they argued off. Somebody broke the spell. Yeah, they broke the spell and broke their heart. Then they drifted far apart. Tell me why, tell me why did they destroy love like that? Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why did they Well, it caught two hearts apart, left them bleeding all alone. And threw them in a river made of stone. Oh, they're dead now. Let's go. 
And that was Archie Roach with Tell Me Why. And now we have Nick in the studio with us from Freedom of Species, a 3CR radio show that I'm all sure that you're aware of. Um, and they speak about animals, fascination, appreciation and conservation. Uh, conservation. <laughs> um, it's an animal love fest and you can catch it on Sundays between 1 and 2 on 3CR. But for now, Nick's in the studio. Hello. Hey. Thank you so much for coming in. Good to be here. Always hard on Monday morning. Um, and we're going to talk about how the animals have been affected by the bushfires in Australia at the moment. So we know 24 people have died, thousands of homes have been destroyed, and 11 million hectares burnt. Obviously, we've seen viral images of how animals have been affected. But Nick, can you shed a little bit more light for us on actually um, how these animals have been affected in Australia? Sure. So the numbers been climbing over time and, and with, you know, new reports emerged. The latest one just a few days ago was 1.25 billion animals are killed. That's from the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Um, and yeah, basically that's um, building on data from the science of Professor Dickman from the University of Sydney. But, I mean, I think that is important and that number is just staggering. But I also think whether we're talking about human suffering or animal suffering or whatever, once it goes above a certain number, it's really difficult to comprehend and it kind of becomes a bit meaningless. So I'd really encourage people to think about uh, individual stories of animals, whether... Um, it's a koala. Koalas have been particularly affected. Uh, they're very slow. Um, they can't get away very quickly. They live in eucalyptus trees, which are flammable because of the oil inside them, etc. So I'd really encourage people to think about individual stories. And there, certainly this is an issue that's been covered on 7.30 on the ABC. Um, we can actually see individual animals have been rescued, for example, and looking into those individual stories. Because, yeah, as I say, it, it is a big number, but, yeah, I think it becomes a bit meaningless. But I think it really hits home when you see the individual animals who have been affected by this, are affected by being burnt, affected on a more long-term basis through loss of habitat through these fires as well. Mm. And I think also people are searching at the moment for a number and for facts to try and make sense to themselves of a lot of what, what is happening with the fires. And do you think, I mean, how difficult is it to put a number on it? And is it worth even trying to, or as you said, just take it as an individual basis? Yeah, I think it is worth putting a number on it in terms of like, showing the magnitude of how big it is and, and as you say there is that um, yeah I guess the discrepancy it's obviously devastating for those people being killed but in terms of the animals being killed it's just so much huger and, and I guess yeah thinking about yeah I think it is important to have those numbers but again I think probably people may be more likely to take action and take it seriously when they think about I guess just something you hear about the individuals uh, individual humans who have uh, lost their homes who have died who have felt fear in light of these fires uh, I think that's going to be more powerful and get us to act more than hearing a number of 20 people for example who know about a family um, and again same for animals again what we think about uh, animals are losing their homes they're being injured they're being killed by these fires as well mm. and do you think we're seeing an element of speciesism um, or speciesist at the moment for animals um, depending on who we or what animals we care about more than others yeah. And chucking humans in the mix there as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there was a great article on this published on the ABC. Um, it was called The Animals We Rescue and the Animals We Don't. That was by Siobhan Sullivan. And basically she was talking about this hierarchy we have. Um, obviously, as, as you mentioned with humans, we, we put ourselves at the top as well. So there's so that overall speciesism of humans at the top and other animals uh, below us. But even within that sort of lower category of, of non-human animals or other animals, we often put compassion 
companion animals at the top and we treat them like family members. And there certainly have been cases I've read about where uh, companion animals have been left behind. That's often been an accidental thing. So uh, a family's fleeing the fire and the cat runs off because they're scared and they kind of have to leave them. It's a really devastating decision for them. There have been some good stories where that has happened and the, the, they've returned and luckily the animal has been okay. Um, but yeah, we generally, um, most people treat them fairly well, treat them as members of the family, etc. And then going down that hierarchy, we have our native Australian wildlife who, you know, maybe we don't put on the same level of companion animals, but generally, yeah, they're, they're given a fair bit of respect in terms of, yeah, it's devastating to see there's koalas killed, there's kangaroo killed. So we kind of, so you put them in the sort of middle level of the hierarchy. And then um, at the very bottom is livestock um, animals we use for food and agriculture etc and yeah in these cases a lot of them have been burnt and killed and that's really uh, devastating even um, right now for example there's um, hundreds and thousands of livestock um, being killed or being placed in mass graves because of biosecurity concerns this has been done by the Australian Defence Forces and these hundreds of thousands of animals are just being piled into these mass graves which is really sad, um, but at the same time, I think we also got to keep in mind that they were destined to be slaughtered fairly soon anyway. Um, their lives cut well shorter than that otherwise lived to um, anyway in these industries. And also in terms of that uh, speciesism, that discrimination against animals, a lot of the media reporting often is quite speciesist, even in outlets that um, portray themselves as non-biased and objective and always having the middle ground. Um, I'm thinking of the ABC specifically. Mm. Often when we see reporting of, of loss of so-called livestock, animals like cows, etc., it's, it's sort of put down of this is an economic harm to the farmers involved. So the, it's not so much important for those individuals, but it's like a loss of profit from these industries that were going to kill these animals anyway, but they haven't managed to kill them in a profitable way. Mm. They've been killed in other ways which isn't profitable to these industries. So often um, at least those kind of animals are only spoken about as useful or important as a use value to humans or as an economic commodity rather than being important in their own right. Mm. And I've seen, um, I've just noticed anyway when I've been looking, uh, researching and, and just online in general, um, when you attach the word feral to anything, suddenly you can cull it. And I've mm. seen that made the headlines sort of this week for one reason or another, the plan to cull 10,000 camels um, that have sort of made their way in from the from the arid areas, and they are. I mean, do you know much about that? I'm just thinking of what I saw on the news. Yeah, I'm, I'm not hugely on top of the, mm. the um, camel issue specifically, but I think that is something that um, Siobhan O'Sullivan's article is only a short opinion piece and didn't cover, um, yeah, of what's often called, uh, called uh, pest species. I'd probably like to call introduced species. Yes, um, yeah. But, yeah, are often even below livestock. And I guess the, the language we use towards animals very much affects how we treat it, how much value they're given. And even, um, yeah, you mentioned camels, but even uh, kangaroos, for example. So, again, there has been a lot of uh, sympathy sympathy towards the kangaroos but um, yeah, they're sort of killed on an ongoing basis by the ACT government, thousands every year. Um, so, yeah, as much as that is an upsetting thing, also, yeah, I guess similar to livestock as well, um, it's definitely like a climate emergency affecting these animals, but we've also got an animal emergency as well, not just from the fires, but on an ongoing basis for all the animals in slaughterhouses, for all those kangaroos being killed by the ACT government, etc. Mm. Um, and, yeah, again, I think this idea of, yeah, in, um, introduced species, 
species, there is this sort of um, devaluing and, and often killing. And I think, you know, a lot of these issues are really complex and there's um, impacts on native animals, etc. Um, but I think often when we devalue a group, we often, um, in particularly case in the animals, we go straight to killing them because it might be the cheapest solution, for example. Whereas if we gave animals more, um, if, if we um, gave them more weight and more importance, then we might find non-lethal solutions that can deal with these environmental issues without, without actually harming individuals. Mm. And we've seen a huge amount of generosity through campaigns, um, whether they be across social media um, and celebrities or whatever, raising money for the bushfires. But what do you think about um, big businesses when they're putting their name out there and they're raising money for the bushfires when they've done huge agricultural damage as well as I mean I'm in my head I'm just thinking uh, McDonald's for one and also a fast fashion house such as Boohoo raising money for fires when they are doing direct damage yeah to the environment yeah yeah I think it, it in a way goes back to if we think of like the the movement effective altruism which is all about donating part of our money and I, I think that can be a positive thing I'm definitely not saying never give your money away but I guess my critique of a lot of these movements which are about um, donating, giving money, they often ignore the root causes of these issues. So it's kind of like the rich are doing the most because they're giving away the most money in some cases, um, but ignores kind of their role in creating. And I guess I'd say the same with the, the um, yeah corporations as well. Like It's better if they give some of their money. Uh, but also, yeah, in this uh, climate change fuel crisis, I think it's important not just to deal with the symptoms. Like We, we have to deal with the symptoms. Or we have to help the, the people and other animals and environments etc we have to kind of deal with the consequences of that uh, but I think yeah even more important is actually getting to the source of the issue including challenging some of these big companies which are, are fueling climate change. Mm. And um, you and your team at Freedom of Species do so much work and you're working every day towards animal rights um, whether there's been an environmental disaster or not is it frustrating to see waves of sudden attention and then dips in attention when there's not been a disaster. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I'd try and uh, try and be more, see it as a positive rather yeah. than negative. I think you can get very cynical and say, you, yeah, you're caring about this and, and why aren't you caring about this, etc. But I mean, I think there is, you know, strong issues with compassion fatigue and with climate change, climate f climate change fatigue. So I am sympathetic to people that it, it's hard. You've got so many issues you're caring about and uh, this one sort of overarching issue, climate change, which I think is very difficult to deal with, particularly now that we're not just looking at like, again, um, there have been countries like low-lying countries have been dealing this with for years, but say in inner Melbourne, it's often been something we're kind of talking about, this future thing, and, and now that we're living through it, it can be very difficult to deal with. So I definitely understand that people can't be across all issues. I guess what I try and do is encourage people to make those links and kind of maybe reframe the issue a little bit. So we're, we've spoken about the animals being killed and how this um, is putting koala populations at risk and these kind of things, but I always try and bring it back to individual animals as well. So in terms of a koala being killed, that isn't just important because their um, their species is reducing, but that individual is important. Their suffering, their life is, is important, um, just as humans. So bring it back to, to individual animals beyond just their species, beyond just their iconic status in the case of, of koalas and kangaroos and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess I try and yeah look at this reaction uh, or some of these things that have happened um, during uh, during this crisis. And uh, one article I saw on mamamia.com just 
gave a whole a whole bunch of good stories in relation to this um, in relation to to this this uh, this issue. So, uh, for example, two teenagers rescued a uh, filled up their car with koalas. Um, that was in uh, Gongkangaroo Island. Uh, lots of so many examples of firefighters who are there to primarily help humans, but while they're there, have, have taken uh, compassion to animals um, and, and have rescued um, koalas. Um, people giving koalas drinks of water and that kind of thing. And so I think this really shows our compassion towards animals. And I guess like a, a more cynical approach would be like, you, you do this, but you support all these indus- but industries. But I guess it's more a matter of trying to sort of extend that compassion rather than saying, why is there compassion when there's not these other areas? But more going, I think it's in a lot of people's nature to be compassionate to animals when they see them on an individual level when they interact with them. And I guess it's as uh, much as possible trying to live uh in inconsistency with that it's hard to be consistent in this society but as much as possible trying to avoid these industries which don't treat animals in that way which devalue them treat them as commodities and cut their lives short Mm. yeah i think the stories of compassion that we've seen throughout this um, crisis and disasters uh, with the bushfires has been inspiring i think Mm. it it definitely shows how we can pull together and as, as how humans we're very compassionate in our nature um, thank you, Nick, so much. And you've got your show, um, yeah, for Freedom of Species Sundays, one for one t- till two, one hour long show. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we're back this Sunday after taking a bit of a break. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so tune in. And yeah, thank you, Nick, for coming. No worries. Coming and with us. can I just quickly give a few plugs for some yes, organisations? Of course. Um, I did very briefly want to mention as well. You covered cricket, and I, I thought a cricket example was going to be really um, out there. But for the like two or three three CR listeners who like cricket, um, a few vegan cricketers, Peter Siddle, Adam Zamper, and Kane Richardson, are donating two hundred dollars a wicket to every wicket they take. They're donating to animals. Um, that sort of followed other cricketers are donating money for to the humans. That's kind of interesting as well. Um, but in terms of groups who can do, donate to AJP Sanctuary Saviors. You can find that at emmahurstmp.com. They're donating to um, rescue groups and also animal sanctuaries who have been affected by these fires. Amazing. That's great. Thank you so much, no Nick. Thank you. Cheers. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind... The Setting Sun Film Festival in Melbourne's West is calling for entries until 31st of January. Enter your short or feature film into our international festival with the cult following and see your film screen at Yarraville's Art Deco Sun Theatre in May. The festival runs for seven days and features a culturally diverse program that includes Australia's first female filmmakers program and a wide range of categories and genres. Lots of prizes to win. All details on our website. 
settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. CR Community Radio, 855am. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and 
I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Now we're going to speak to James Conlon, spokesperson for the Upfield Corridor Coalition, about the campaign to save Gandolfo Gardens. Gandolfo Gardens are a much-loved green community space right next to Moreland Station in Coburg, but the level crossing removal project is putting that space at risk. James, what's happening with the level crossing removal project there at Moreland Station? How's it going to affect Gandolfo Gardens? Hi, yeah, thanks for uh, interviewing me. Um, I'm actually just at the site now because we heard on late Friday afternoon that the level crossing removal project plans to start doing work um, this morning and oh, no. to fence off the areas and potentially begin cutting down all the trees. So um, there's about 15 or 20 of us here uh, this morning, uh, you know, p- picketing the site. Um, we've seen a few contractors driving around and it looks like we've scared them off for now. Um, but, yeah, that's where we're at at the moment. Well, yeah, good, good on you. Thank you. So, not, uh, I'll go back and say thank you very much for coming on the show this morning. But, yeah, that's, that's, ter- that's per- terrible news. That um, Do you think it's because you've, had, you've got this event planned on Saturday that they're trying to uh, jump the gun on you and get work underway? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, you know, they've, I've definitely heard of our plan, and because in the last sort of correspondences that we've heard from the LXRP. Um, it sounded like that works weren't actually going to start until mid this year, middle of the year. Um, but where we think that uh, our community festival and um, campaign, which was scheduled for this Saturday, 18th of... Well, actually, it, well, yeah, it is still scheduled for them. We will be proceeding. Um, but we think they're trying to take over the park before we get there. <laughs> oh, that's um, such dirty yeah. tactics. Very dirty, but yeah. Well, do you want to tell us what you know what that event is, what what you've got planned on Saturday, and what what is going to happen, hopefully? Yeah, so it's a community festival, a family friendly community festival, uh, with you know kids activities and uh, music and that sort of thing, starting from 4 p.m. Um, and a picnic, and then after that there'll be an overnight camping where we'll camp in um, in the park, and yeah, it'll be like a uh, you know, a civilly disobedient um, event to really show the government that the community wants this park and we're not going away. Oh, that's perfect. And I know there's a lot of 3CR listeners who would want to get involved with that. Um, yeah. what, what, have, what has the Upfield Cor- Corridor Coalition done so far to try and stop the, the, the destruction going ahead? Um, oh, so we've done, all, we've done all the sort of participated in all the formal, um, you know, PR stunts 
which is what they call the LXRP called consultation. So uh, they've had, you know, community consultation sessions uh, where you actually walk out of those sessions knowing less about the project than when you went in. We've been writing letters and calling uh, the minister, Jacinta Allen and Lizzie Blanthorne, who's the local member. Um, we've held uh, a rally down Sydney Road or march down Sydney Road a couple of months ago with, with about 300 people. Yeah, we've just been doing lots of community events. Uh, town hall meeting a few months ago with about 200 people. Um, yeah, just doing lots of stuff over the last six months. Um, but then I guess, yeah, we're now we're having to up the tactics because we're just getting, being completely ignored by Jacinta Allen um, and the Andrews government. Um, so if people are interested, yeah, I, I strongly suggest people to come down from 4pm on Saturday. Um, and, yeah, and if you want to know more about us, um, just Google Upfield Corridor Coalition uh, and find us on the website, otherwise uh, via Facebook. Yeah, uh, and, you know, the, with the bushfires raging nationally, you know, there's the US and Iran conflict, and it's easy for people to lose sight of the trees for the forest, so to speak. Could you yeah. just remind us of the importance of community action at the neighbourhood level? Yeah, I mean, I think all these issues are interconnected, these sort of local struggles for public space, um, as well as, you know, these bigger uh, uh, bigger issues around climate change. Yeah, they're, I mean, I think they're all connected. I mean, we're all fighting to save our country and our local communities from unnecessary destruction. Um, and this one's deliberate destruction by the state government when we know there are alternatives. And I think it's just unconscionable that they're mindlessly destroying a huge uh, green space in the context of a climate and bushfire emergency. Yeah, you know, even though we know, you know, we've got we've had independent arborists and engineer, engineers telling us that you know these, this park could be easily saved um, with some minor design tweaks to the project. But I guess it all comes down to dollars and cents with this uh, construction. Yeah, I, possibly, but I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, one of our suggested solutions is to so they're building a new elevated station instead of putting it where they're proposing to put it put it above Moreland Road and Bell Street um, so it straddles the roads and that uh, that saves the that means that you're moving this new station out of the park so you don't need to cut down all the trees and it also means that you can access the station from each side of the busy roads and not have to cross the road so that's just a design tweak um, which you know we haven't had any, uh, we haven't had a com uh, convincing argument from the LXRP as to why that can't happen. Um, even though the CEO of the LXRP, Kevin Devlin, went on radio on John Fain a few months ago, um, and people from the public asked him why, and John Fain asked him, said that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you do that? And he had no real reason uh, for that. Um, so we we just don't. Yeah, it's, we don't know why um, some of our sensible solutions are being ignored. Yeah, even though we think a lot of them are very cost reasonable. Yeah, well, it seems it just does seem that it's it's all being ignored. And it, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's time to step up. Um, um, what strategies are being used to save um, Gandalf Gardens? How can people get involved with the coalition? Um, yeah, so. If you Google us, um, Upfield Corridor Coalition, go onto our website 
um, you can get onto our mailing list that way. Um, otherwise, there is we have a Facebook page which is called Better Level Crossing Removals for Moreland. Bit of a tongue twister, but that's actually a Facebook page for all the. There's a bunch of groups that are working together now, local groups. So that's sort of a united kind of uh, Facebook page. So Better Level Crossing Removals for Moreland. Better level crossing removals for Moreland. Thank you so yeah. much for speaking to us today, James, and I hope everything goes well with uh, Gandalf Hill Gardens. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. All right. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Fulton Street with Ain't That The Way. Just a quick one here. Okay, thank you, Alice. Now we have Damien Patterson in the studio. Damien is the policy officer for the Council to Homeless Persons and that is the peak body representing organisations and individuals in Victoria with a commitment to ending homelessness. Damien is here to talk about new data released by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare Welcome, Damien. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, listeners. And thank you for coming in uh, to the studio. It's always lovely to have people here uh, live. Um, Damien, the national figures on homelessness are astounding. This new data states that over 290,000 Australians are accessing homelessness services, uh, and that's been data just from one year, the calendar, the, sorry, the financial year of uh, 2018 to 2019. Even more astounding are the Victorian figures, almost 113,000 people without or at risk of being without a home, and nearly 40% of the national homelessness total comes from Victoria. Uh, amounting to one in 57 Victorians, and for Indigenous people, the proportion is one in six. Um, what's happening in Victoria that makes people so vulnerable to uh, homelessness? Yeah, so when we reflect on the experience of homelessness, at its core, it's the lack of having a home. Um, when you look at what the Victorian government is doing about homelessness, and in particular in the social housing space, um, Victoria spends the least amount per uh, per head of per capita on uh, social housing 
by any state in the country, uh, we spend about half of the national average. And that works out in the numbers. We have the lowest spend and we have the lowest proportion of social housing in the country. We um, have something like one property in every 35 compared to a national average of something like one in 20. Um, without more affordable houses that people can live in, um, we have homelessness that is continuing to grow. Why is the Victorian government letting this happen? So I think that the Victorian government understands the issue. They understand the importance of social housing for a social policy agenda. Um, what they haven't done is made the decision that this is where the money ought to go. So um, the thing about housing is we're calling for a great big build and we're looking at we're asking for something like two billion dollars a year um we need the community to be standing by us and say and by people experiencing homelessness and say this is where we think that the state government money needs to go this is where our taxes ought to go this should be a priority for our government we've seen a huge community response to their homelessness for want of a, <laughs> a better word in this context um in relation to the fires um, why are people responding to that crisis and why, why is it a more difficult space that you're in? So I think that people also do respond to homelessness. I think that the community cares about this issue. I think that there is a great amount of generosity um, around. I think one of the things that we see in the face of a crisis is that um, it feels like there might be something tangible that we can do. We can donate um, in the face of homelessness, um, people don't feel like they can donate a home. They don't feel like they can donate towards a home. It's a, um, it is a thing that is less, I guess, tangible. Um, of course, you can donate towards a home, uh, but the, I guess, one-to-one -one seeing how I can help is always hard uh, in an issue like homelessness, um, which is, I guess, why we always encourage people to... Uh, in part of how they want to respond to homelessness, uh, be part of telling the government that you expect more. Does it need a crisis, though, to, to bring people together in the way that we've seen with the fires? I mean, I would call this a crisis. Um, we've got 105 Victorians each day that are turned away from your services because there aren't homes for them. Mm. Um and I agree, I think we have a crisis, and I also think that um, the that there are instances all of the time where um, homelessness becomes a major media issue. We'll all remember, I think, the tragic murder of Courtney Heron last year, who was sleeping rough in, uh, in Royal Park, um, and people wanted to respond to that. Um, the tricky thing, I think, is that sometimes it's hard to know what you can do, um, and so... Yeah, I guess I'll always pivot back to speak to the government. Okay, well, mm. um, that's a, a really interesting um, aspect from the community perspective. What about the economy? How much does Victoria's strong economy and rising um, real estate prices impact the situation? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, Everybody is aware of Victoria's massive housing price growth. Everybody is aware, I think, uh, about how unaffordable housing has become. Uh, we know that uh, Victoria is um, you know, has great big population growth and it doesn't have the housing stock to match it, um, and that our housing stock, our social housing stock, is not continuing to grow. Um, 
the fact is that housing is getting less affordable um, and part of that is because that we haven't been responding to the economic growth that we've seen. Um, not everybody benefits equally from that economic growth and in particular if you are on a um, Centrelink income that isn't growing much at all. It's certainly not keeping up with um, the change in income of people who are doing well from the economic growth. Uh, we need to make sure that we are benefiting more equally and in particular that those who aren't benefiting um, you know, shouldn't be left behind and experiencing homelessness because of it. So we've got a surge in apartment growth in areas, you know, the Docklands and sort of the inner city. So does it become a policy issue then to sort of try and direct um, the housing growth to areas that are affordable or to to make things more affordable um, for those in need in, in those cases you're talking about? Yeah, and so affordable housing helps because it takes the pressure off the housing market. But for people on extremely low incomes, uh, what we call affordable housing is often very rarely affordable. Um, there is this great uh, study that shows that the number one thing that will prevent a person from experiencing homelessness in the future uh, is access to social housing, that it is um, a rent that is linked to your income and is managed at an affordable level for you. Um, so we can continue to grow the housing stock, and that's great, uh, but while social housing continues to decline as a proportion of all housing in Victoria, it's going to mean there's less access for those most vulnerable to a home that they can afford to live in. So what does good social housing look like? Um, so good social housing looks exactly like any other property on your street, um, exactly like any other property in your apartment building. Uh, the only difference really between uh, social housing and other housing um, in many ways is that it is set at a level that a person can afford if they're highly vulnerable. And what is the importance of having a home? Like, it's not just the roof over your head. It, it has impact in, you know, various ways. Absolutely, it does. And so I think oftentimes when we think about homelessness, we think about the um, material discomforts. We think about um, being cold, being hot, uh, having not having access to food or to our beds. Um, and that is a part of the experience of homelessness, but really... Um, what people tell us about their experiences of homelessness is that it shattered them on a personal level. On a personal level, um, they stopped feeling like they were a part of their community. They stopped feeling like a part of any community. Um, they really, yeah, I guess lost a lot of self-confidence, lost a lot of self-worth um, just by virtue of the fact that they didn't have a stable home anymore. So it's a really isolating, dislocating experience. Absolutely, and I think that um, you and I see the evidence of that every day when somebody is uh, sleeping rough on the street and that um, many people avert their eyes. Um, that tells a person that they're not part of this community, that they're not one of the rest of us. Um, and it's not always, you know, not everybody who's experiencing homelessness is sleeping rough, but there are many ways in which it's, they're excluded from the things that the rest of you and I enjoy. So apart from putting our voice through to uh, government, what else can someone do who is compassionate and cares about this issue? Mm. So I guess that is the other thing that I always want to say is that 
um, a person who's experiencing homelessness uh, is often treated like they're not a, another member of the community. Um, so if somebody, if you meet a person and you think they may be experiencing homelessness, um, do talk to them like you would anybody else. It seems simple, but it actually isn't how we all operate every day. Um, do, you know, continue to treat people like you do, like you treat everybody. A person who's experiencing homelessness is a person. Well, that's a really positive note to um, finish on. And um, given we've had this huge community response to those um, suffering in fires and perhaps without their homes, it, um, it's probably a good um, way to think about it, that people's circumstances um, can lead them to homelessness and it might not be in their control. So whatever the circumstances, we should be compassionate and, and helping those who, who need it. Thanks so much, Damien, for coming in and pretty much time to wrap up our show today. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. And just on that note as well, we have a few uh, community events going on at the moment for, and they're all fundraising for the bushfires. So just to name a few, we've got Raise the Roof Bush Dance Fundraiser at the Spotted Mallard. And you can go and get tickets from that for that at Mallard Melbourne Vic. Um, and then you should be able to find that quick Google search. That should be your job done. Um, Rock Against the Fires as well. And do look up all of these. Um, and then we have one more coming up as well, which is a fires fundraiser on the Saturday the 25th of Jan 2020. We can put details for all of these on our show notes on our page um, so that you can catch up. And thank you to all of our guests today as well. We've had a brilliant show, super lively in the studio today. Alice, I might just hop in there too Go because I um, should follow up with our discussion with Damien just with some um, helpline numbers for people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. So if you're in that situation and need to speak to someone for housing and support, um, you can call this number at any time, one 800 825955 and if you're in a situation where you're escaping family violence you can call Safe Steps on 1800 015188 Thank you for that Claudia, yeah, very important It's been a great action-packed show today. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, thank you for all of, to all of our guests for either chatting to us during the week, like Gareth did, coming into the studio or talking to us on the phone. Um, yeah. and I just wanted to say quickly, anyone who's um, in the Coburg area wanted to go down to Moreland Station and help out at Gandalf Her Gardens. It sounds like um, yeah, that's a real community effort we can get behind. And it's something tangible you can do, uh, you know, at, at the local level. Sometimes, you know, we we get we feel really downtrodden when there's these huge issues, but something like a park, you know, we we can go down there, we can occupy it, and we can try and make a difference at the community level. Yeah, such a good point. Um, and I think that's all we've got time for today. So stay tuned for Women on the Line. Tune into all of our um, breakfasters throughout the week, and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.